Do you want to talk about books? Yeah. Hello, and welcome to A Well-Read Life. This is a place to share stories about good books and the reading life. I'm your host, Beth Jamison. Join me as I meander through my reading journey and discover the books that make up a well-read life. My first introduction to A Little Princess was a movie starring Shirley Temple, not the book much to my shame. There was one particular scene in the movie that I especially loved. If you are familiar with the story, you know the moment which I'm talking about. It's when Sarah's attic garret is transformed, with beautiful tapestries hanging on the walls and a warm fire in the grate, and a feast laid out to share with Becky the scullery maid. Beautiful silk robes and warm slippers complete the magical transformation of Sarah's room. It is a moment out of a fairy tale, and it never failed to bring a shiver of delight as a child. It still does to this day. A Little Princess by Frances Hodgson Burnett is the story of Sarah Crewe, a wealthy little girl who lives in India with her widowed father until the age of seven. Sarah and her father share a close relationship, and their few scenes together are touching and affectionate. When Sarah turns seven, she is sent to Miss Minchin's select seminary for young ladies in England. The separation from her father is the first trial that the little soul must endure in her short life. At Miss Minchin's school, Sarah is a star pupil, She is a voracious reader, fluent in French, and a grand storyteller, which makes her popular among the other girls at the school. Sarah wants for nothing. Her indulgent father has seen to that. And although not of royal blood, she is treated like a princess. She has the best room at the school, a maid of her own, a wardrobe of beautiful and extravagant clothes, and her own horse and carriage. It would seem Sarah has all the makings to be a wholly insufferable and spoiled child, along the lines of Mary Lennox in The Secret Garden. But she is not. Sarah is a kind and gracious child, befriending the girls in the school who are less popular and overlooked. And in the case of the scullery maid Becky, social outcast. Sarah Crewe possesses a tender heart to her fellow man and creatures, a regal bearing which earns her the nickname Princess Sarah among her peers, undaunted hope, and a rich imagination. Frances Hodgson Burnett does a beautiful job of illustrating the dignity of the human soul through the story of Sarah Crewe. We see this exhibited in countless scenes throughout the book, but one of the most telling moments is one before Sarah's 11th birthday party, a fateful and tragic birthday we soon find out. There's also a very tender moment at the end of the book, but in the interest of not spoiling it, I'll leave it for you to discover. In the scene before her birthday party, Sarah asks Miss Minchin's permission to invite Becky to her party. If you please, Miss Minchin, said Sarah suddenly, mayn't Becky stay? It was a bold thing to do. Miss Minchin was betrayed into something like a slight jump. Then she put her eyeglasses up and gazed at her show pupil disturbedly. Becky, she exclaimed, my dearest Sarah. Sarah advanced a step toward her. I want her because I know she will want to see the presents, she explained. She is a little girl, too, you know. Miss Minchin was scandalized. She glanced from one figure to the other. My dear Sarah, she said, Becky is the scullery maid. 
scullery maids are not little girls. It had really not occurred to her to see them in that light. Scullery maids were machines who carried coal scuttles and made fires. One of Sarah's most beautiful traits is the ability to see the value and worth of all children. Whether it is proclaiming to Miss Minchin that Becky is more than a scullery maid, that she is a child much like herself with similar fancies and desires, or giving a majority of her roles to a starving child, even as her own stomach gnaws with hunger, Sarah's heart is tender to the suffering of those around her. It is to Miss Minchin's discredit that she is not. She educates the girls in her school, but she exudes no warmth. It is a transactional relationship. Her treatment of the girls is determined by the size of their parents' bank account and what their future success will do for her reputation. What Frances Hodgson Burnett so beautifully illustrates in this scene is that every life is a miracle of creation. Life has value, and God, through the sacrifice of his son, has declared it worthy of redemption. Miss Minchin's greatest flaw is that she misses the value and dignity of the lives in her sphere of influence. A Little Princess shares much of the same structure as a fairy tale, and as I mentioned in the last episode, it has much in common with the story of Cinderella. Cinderella and Sarah Crewe each have a disposition inclined towards kindness and appear to be inherently good, although Sarah has a few displays of fiery temper when she sees a wrong or injustice done. Both are at the mercy of a wicked female character, Cinderella's actual stepmother, and Miss Minchin for Sarah, although Miss Minchin hides her hatred towards Sarah, lavishing endearments and treating her as the pet of the school. But as in many of our most beloved fairy tales, this changes in the second half of the book, when Sarah meets with dire tragedy and her charm life comes to a sudden halt. Sarah's beloved father dies, leaving her alone, and because of a bad investment, penniless. This is not a spoiler, but it does differ from movie adaptations. It's a hard blow for Sarah, and if it were not for her spirit and the memory of her beloved father, it would break her. Miss Minchin keeps Sarah at the school out of charity, or so she says, but it is really because Sarah is cheap labor. Not only can she run errands and do general cleaning, but she can also tutor the younger children in their French. Sarah's fall from wealth and privilege is the greatest test of her character, that she is likely to see in her lifetime. To cope with her hardship, Sarah makes believe that she is a princess, continuing the play started by her schoolmates. In the throes of her misery, Sarah says this, Whatever comes cannot alter one thing. If I am a princess in rags and tatters, I can be a princess inside. It would be easy to be a princess if I were dressed in cloth of gold, but it is a great deal more of a triumph to be one all the time when no one knows it. In this generation, when the term princess can conjure up so many negative associations with selfishness and vanity, it is important that we make a distinction with Sarah's words. She is not speaking out of narcissism or self-aggrandizement, but from an understanding of the innate dignity of her life. Her early example of her father's love gives her a firm understanding that her life is a precious gift. Sarah is an unusual princess. It is not because of her lineage or wealth that she earns this title. Likewise, her royalty is not diminished when she descends into poverty. Sarah's character gives her royal bearing. She exemplifies kindness, selflessness, and Christian charity. And even in Sarah's suffering, she brings good to the people around her. These are the characteristics of a princess in the world Frances Hodgson Burnett creates. In every movie version I've seen of A Little Princess, Sarah and her father are reunited in the end. 
His death, it turns out, was falsely reported. I was a teenager before this false assumption was broken. At tea one afternoon, our dear family friend, Mrs. Reynolds, I've talked about our sweet friendship with Mrs. Reynolds in the Jane Austen episode, said in an aside how tragic it was that Captain Crewe really dies in the book. It was a shock to hear this about one of my favorite childhood movies, and it felt like a betrayal. It was as if the filmmakers didn't trust their audience to endure such heartbreak on Sarah's behalf. I suppose they thought that allowing Captain Crewe to live was more palatable than the alternative, but in the end it created a disconnect between the book and screen. I read the book many years later with some trepidation, knowing the tragedy that awaited me. And although I enjoyed the book, it was still hard for me to reconcile the ending, preferring what I supposed was the happier ending of the screen adaptation. But thankfully, it was not the only time that I read the book. A couple of months ago, I was seized with a sudden desire to read it again, perhaps because of my love of the secret garden. Now, I'm sure Frances Hodgson Burnett's choice to have Captain Crewe die could be misconstrued by some as an elaborate device on the author's part to elicit sympathy for her heroine, bordering on emotional manipulation. But I prefer to see it as courageous to expose children to the reality of suffering and tragedy in the world. It places a great deal of trust in her audience. I've used this quote from Joan Aiken before from her book, How to Write for Children, and it's worth quoting again here. Children have tough moral fiber. They can surmount sadness and misfortune in fiction, especially if it is on a grand scale. And a fictional treatment may help inoculate them against the real thing. But let it not be total tragedy. Your ending must show some hope for the future. Thankfully, Sarah does get a happy ending. And although it isn't the ending I hoped for as a child, I have more of an appreciation for it now. The way in which Frances Hodgson Burnett chose to end the book lends a realistic touch to this little fairy tale and anchors it in hope. In the end, forgiveness is granted over perceived injustice and a grave misunderstanding is cleared. There's a beautiful portrayal of adoption too. Like Cinderella, there's restoration and more is restored than was lost. But because the reader is on Sarah's journey longer and sees her struggles and abandonment, hoping against hope that all will be well in the end. When it comes, it is somehow more satisfying. And I can't help closing the book with a smile on my face. To my knowledge, I never went through a princess phase as a child. Perhaps it was the time in which I grew up, before all the marketing of recent movies. Princesses lived in fairy tales, and for the most part, they resided in the pages of books and not on the screen. In my formative years, an era before the recent slew of new Disney princesses, there were only a few, Snow White, Sleeping Beauty, and Cinderella. I loved these movies in childhood, but in my play, I don't remember wanting to be them. I chose instead to play at the life of a pioneer, working and surviving the harsh conditions on the prairie, or pretending that I was Anne of Green Gables, or that I was Sarah Crewe, reenacting the attic scene that so captured my fancy. And yet the world of fairy tales and these heroines coexisted in my childhood, enriching my imagination exponentially. In this generation, when little girls are inundated with princess marketing in the media, if a little girl is going to emulate a princess, I would rather it be for the virtues of these heroines of the past. Of princesses, if you will, like Sarah Crewe, whose story shows the dignity of human life, the transforming work of forgiveness, the power of hope, and the richness and wonder of imagination. Read this book if you are looking for a sweet story of hope and redemption, 
or if you like a book that shows the reality of suffering in the world, but never leaves the reader in despair. Read it if you like courageous heroines. Read it if you are a lover of fairy tales, and not necessarily what has become of them on the screen. Read it if you like a touch of magic and wonder in your books. Well, that's all for this week. I'll be back soon with a new episode. In the meantime, you can find me on Instagram at wellreadbeth. Until next time. Thank you.